0: Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. On July 1st, 2019, Dr. Joseph Meany became president of the NCBC. In this podcast, Dr. Meany introduces himself to the NCBC family. He begins by speaking about his work at Human Life International and how his experiences there will serve him well as NCBC president. He then discusses what he regards as the center's strengths, areas where it can improve, and his vision for the future. He concludes by addressing how the NCBC can expand both its influence and its audience, and how it can best serve the church moving forward. Dr. Meaning, good morning and thanks for joining us today.
1: That's a pleasure to be here.
0: I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a bit about your background, specifically your your education and your work.
1: Certainly. I was born in Corpus Christi, Texas, so that's pretty far down in South Texas. Uh, However, my mother is a French citizen, so we spent about half our time in France uh, before I had to go to school, and then I would be there in the summers. So I kind of have a – well, actually, I do have U.S. and French citizenship. And uh, bicultural, binational. And I did my university education uh, first at the Catholic University in Dallas, University of Dallas. And then I went down to the University of Texas at Austin. I did a master's in Latin American studies. And then I actually went to work and for many years. And then I went back to school to do the doctorate in bioethics at the Catholic University of the Sacred Heart in Rome. And uh, that's the program that actually Cardinal Elios Grecchia founded. Who was at the Pontifical Council for the Family and then president at the Pontifical Academy for life, uh, just a wonderful pioneer in Catholic bioethics. So from that point on, uh, I was fully educated in all these different things, but uh, I was also working you know at the same time. I, I actually did the doctorate while I was already working.
0: Great. How many languages do you speak?
1: So I was very fortunate in being raised so my Maternal language is French, so my mom would speak to us in French and, of course, English, but also South Texas is a is a very Hispanic region. So I, I learned Spanish very early on, and I really enjoyed Spanish. And then I've spent over nine years uh, living and working in Rome and studying there. So I was thrown into the Italian mix, and I really like Italian as well. So those are the, the four languages that I speak the most. Uh, my wife, however, is uh, half German. And I have in-laws in Germany and whatnot, so I've kind of picked up a little bit of German, but I wouldn't really say that I'm fluent in that language at all.
0: I'm sure that those language skills have helped you and will help you quite a bit in the future. So,
1: Well, it was very helpful with Human Life International.
0: Which is a great segue into our next question. So prior to, be, prior to coming to the NCBC, you worked for Human Life International. So what was your position at HLI and what were your duties?
1: Yeah, so I started with them way back in 1998, so it's hard to imagine, 21 years. But um, I first started with them as an assistant Latin American coordinator. So it was my Spanish skills and actually the work I'd done in Guatemala and Mexico that was most interesting to them. Also, I'd been to quite a few UN conferences, and uh, that's actually where I got to know HLI better. But uh, so I started with HLI with Latin American work, and then afterwards they wanted to start a Rome office. So to, to have an actual presence there in Rome, and I was tapped to go and open that office. So I did. And then I stayed in Rome for four years afterwards uh, with our director there, Monsignor Ignacio Barreiro, and helped him run that office. So I was uh, yeah assistant director for our Rome office for quite a few years. And then I was brought back to the States in 2002 uh, to be our director of international coordination. So that work basically involved supervising uh, the different continents and regional coordinators and offices in over 90 countries where HLI has a presence. And I did that uh, 2002 to 2010. And then after that, I was sent back to Rome and I was actually to do the doctorate in bioethics and at the same time run our Rome office. And so I did that uh, through 2015. And then afterwards, I moved to France and I was back to the international coordination work for HLI, with a special emphasis on the the French-speaking countries, but also our European work, and then, but a little bit everywhere. I mean, HLI has a global presence. And then I was tapped uh, at the beginning of 2019 to consider uh, taking on the presidency of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Uh, John Haas was a friend going back many years, and uh, we kind of mutually discerned that this was uh, where the Lord was leading us. And so I've started officially on July 1st as president of the NCBC.
0: I, I was just wondering, as you were talking about all the travels, uh, how many frequent flyer miles do you have?
1: You know, not that many. Uh, it's pretty funny <laughs> because although my, you know, someone was calculating like how many trips to the moon I did in terms <laughs> of distance. But a lot of it was on Royal Air, Maroc, you know, or... Uh, Ethiopian Airlines or, you know, all these different airlines or Ryanair or things like that, right. that uh, don't really have frequent flyer miles. Uh, the most, most frequent flyer miles I would get actually was when I came back to the U.S. because then on the U.S. carriers, there were some good, good programs that I could be part of. And sometimes on the Asian trips and Latin American trips, I would be on those carriers. But, you know, we we're looking to save money. So one of the aspect of that is using the airlines that don't really have good frequent flyer programs.
0: But bottom line is you have traveled all over the world and met many, many people.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's 81 individual countries in the last 25 years. And um, yeah, a lot of those countries I went to multiple times. So it was definitely a global experience.
0: Right. So how is HLI similar to the NCBC and how is it different?
1: I think the greatest similarity is engagement on the issues of life and family and bioethics uh, from a Catholic perspective, from uh, institutionally, you know, being started by the church, by church figures. Uh, Human Life International was founded by a Benedictine monk, Father Paul Marks. The National Catholic Bioethics Center was founded in collaboration between the bishops and uh, in the beginning had priests as presidents. And so uh, that, that similarity is right there to serve the church very much in, um, in these fundamental issues of of life and family. I would say uh, the differences are that the NCBC is very much more academic and perhaps uh, it's more local, obviously focusing on the United States Particularly, but you know, with a strong relationship with, with the, the church in Rome, et cetera. HLI is uh, less of an academic institution and more of a grassroots one, although we work very closely with bishops. And uh, particularly, one of the programs that's very important is uh, Seminarians for Life International, that has about 10% of the world's seminarians that are part of that program. Uh, but of course, heavily located in Africa, Latin America, and Asia much less in North America and in Europe, except for Central and Eastern Europe.
0: So what were your most memorable accomplishments at HLI?
1: Well, the first thing, I'd actually only been there about six months when they said, can you start an office for us in Rome? (laughs) And that was kind of an interesting challenge. So I had actually spent uh, six months in Rome. I spoke a little Italian, but uh, we had some help, and we had some individuals. Actually, H.L.I. Canada was very instrumental in that, who went over and uh, and actually rented the office, et cetera. But then I had to, you know, get the phones connected and get things set up, and then learn how to interact with the Roman Curia and just Italy in general, which is very, very different in terms of culture. So getting that going, I think, was a was a big challenge and very interesting. And then over the years, working uh, particularly in the French-speaking countries, in in West Africa, Central Africa, I found it very, very interesting. We started a program, which we're continuing, I'll continue to participate in, even as NCBC president, of an annual uh, seminarian summer institute. And now we have kind of pre-summer institutes where we bring in seminarians or priests from all over the French-speaking countries in Africa, usually from about 10 different countries, and uh, help them to to think about and, and pray about uh, these life and family issues uh, all over the continent, and that has been uh, become a real institution, and I, I think it's a, an important help to the church there in Africa. I've also been involved in a, a very beautiful project, and I found it uh, one of the most unique ones at HLI. It was the Ocean to Ocean Pilgrimage, and mm, what that was, that was yeah, the Ocean to Ocean Pilgrimage was is actually, it's ongoing, an icon of Our Lady of Częstochowa. So the director of HLI Poland is a Mrs. Eva uh, Kowalewski. Uh, actually, with the, with the way they pronounce it and do it in, in Polish, it'd be Kowalewska uh, because of the female version. But uh, Mrs. Kowalewska is very interested in icons. And she did an image of Our Lady of Częstochowa and as part of her work coordinating in Central and Eastern Europe she was in contact with a Russian Orthodox priest who does pro-life work. And he said, I would love to do a pro-life pilgrimage through all of Russia with this icon. And she was like, really? He's absolutely. Yeah. So the incredible thing was he went from Vladivostok on the Pacific ocean, all the way through all of Siberia and Kazakhstan, etc., all of Russia. And so Eva said, well, if you will do, you know, Eurasia like that, I will do all of Western Europe. And Human Life International will, in different countries, take it through all of Western Europe. So they kind of shook hands on this, and it happened. So starting in 2015, went just literally thousands of miles. Uh, several million people came out to pray with the icon and uh, to come up, you know, with pro-life intentions. It was the whole pilgrimage had a, a pro-life theme to it, but it was very beautiful to see, particularly in the East, how many people came out and then it proceeded all throughout western europe even made it over to england and ireland etc and concluded in fatima so that's where the ocean ocean aspect from the pacific ocean to the to the atlantic and it was so successful that uh, hli decided you know this should continue so it was brought over to north america and actually started in maryland where the first catholics arrived in uh, in the us that little island there and then proceeded throughout the us and canada For about a year and a half, and huge numbers of, you know, uh, I don't know how to put it. I mean, just all these conversions and and abortion clinics closing, you know, and all these different fruits from this pilgrimage. And then went down to Mexico and was traveling all around Mexico for quite a while, and then Central America and now South America. And it's just ongoing, but it's been a a real beautiful event. And I was kind of helpful in in setting that up uh, and being part of it as, as the director of international coordination.
0: Well, it's a great, great experiences. What was left, uh, how shall we say, unfinished in your work at HLI? I
1: I think there's always more to be done. And the greatest limitation that any group faces, certainly nonprofit groups, is lack of funds, lack of the ability to to do nearly as much as is required. So I think one of the things that I would have wanted to do more with HLI was to do more visits with seminarians and priests and bishops' conferences. We would uh, sometimes brief the bishops, you know, on what was going on in their countries and and offer resources, particularly educational ones. We would do a lot of conferences and events, and I think that uh, HLI could get more involved. Uh, We were one of the first organizations to be very involved at the UN. And, uh, and doing pro-life activities there. And then that, that aspect of things really grew with so many groups getting involved. And that's that's been wonderful. But I think HLI really needs to grow its presence in a lot of parts of the world where we just have a contact or this or that. It's, um, it's really a global need. And uh, even if you're in 90 countries, that still leaves like 120 where you're not.
0: All right. All right, so... Taking those experiences from hli and and from other um, other experiences you may have had, how do you, how can you apply what you've learned there here to the NCBC?
1: Well I think one of the one of the reasons that I seem to be a good fit for the president of the NCBC is I have a lot of background working with bishops, and that you know is the primary primary Constituency for the National Catholic Bioethics Center. We do a bishops' workshop every two years for the US bishops, but we actually invite bishops from Latin America and the Caribbean, Canada to, to participate. So it is a kind of an international workshop that we do. I think also my experience in Rome is very helpful because we do keep a strong relationship with the Pontifical Academy for Life. Mm-hmm. and other institutions in Rome. And that's an important part of our work in, in service to the international church, the universal church. I think also my concrete background in bioethics is helpful because I've kind of seen where it plays out in different countries and how these issues you know, are dealt with in different countries. I think um, the work that I did on the doctorate and, um, and with the different scholars that I worked with in Rome was also kind of a, a good preparation to see how an institution like the NCBC can, can serve the church and, uh, and make a real difference on these different bioethical issues. So one of the things that I, I really enjoyed as part of my, my studies was that it was very much clinical bioethics. It was, you know, the, the medical school there, the Catholic University, of the Sacred Heart, And so there's a teaching hospital, the Jamali Hospital, where the Holy Father goes for his health needs. When Pope uh, St. John Paul II was shot, that's where they took him for his surgery and his recovery, etc. And so we would go and do, you know, basically shadow doctors to see the different cases in the hospital. And that to me was very, very eye-opening and interesting. You know, it's not just case studies that uh, you're looking at the, the different ethical principles, but, but seeing the, the suffering and the, and the people who need the, the help. The NCBC works very closely with Catholic hospitals here in the United States. And so my experience with Catholic healthcare in Italy, I think is going to be an interesting comparison with that. And I'm looking forward to seeing hospitals here and what goes on and how the NCBC can help with their Catholic identity and their ethics. And so that's part of our activity right now is is what we call the SEER review. So that's the Catholic Identity and Ethics Review. And we're doing several of those at at the current time with Catholic health systems all over the U.S. And that's an important program, the NCBC, to support our Catholic hospitals and help them with some of the ethical challenges that they face.
0: So... Tell us, why did you want to become the president of the NCBC and what specifically attracted you to this role?
1: You know, the thing that attracted me the most was the personality of John Haas. So I knew him as president of the National Catholic Bioethics Center and uh, all the wonderful work that he has been able to do. And that was very inspiring to me. I thought, wow, that would be a wonderful role to have and uh, a wonderful role model to have, to follow in his footsteps. So when he approached me and thought that uh, I might be a good successor for him, I was, of course, very happy to hear that and, uh, and very interested to discern if that was the case, if it would work, and then to go on. We certainly faced some hurdles because I was based in Paris at the time. And so it meant uh, kind of uprooting the family and really kind of changing directions a bit.
0: So how did the process of you accepting the position unfold?
1: That was one of the aspects that I enjoyed the most, actually, is that so we first started, you know, emailing and talking, etc. And then I was able to meet with uh, several members of the board of directors, and then meet with the staff of the NCBC. And then I had six months when the decision was more or less made, but it wasn't officially announced, just to come by and shadow a bit uh, the different people here at the center, particularly John Haas, get to know more board members and, uh, and the staff. And what I would do is I would come over for a week out of every month um, and just uh, do all these different meetings and try to learn as much as I could in the meantime as well about all the activities of the NCBC, because it is really remarkable how much the National Catholic Bioethics Center does in so many different areas.
0: You mentioned John Haas. Um, talk to us about the fact that you're replacing him. You're replacing him as the president of the NCBC. What does this mean for you personally, and what does it mean for the center?
1: Sure. Well, I think for me anyway, he is a very inspirational figure and a very good friend. And I really wouldn't have come on as president of the NCBC if I hadn't had his full support And on top of that, his continued presence. So one of the things that I I very much wanted to see happen and that he was very gracious to agree to was that he would remain on as a very active President Emeritus and senior fellow. So he's going to remain on the board of directors. He's going to continue with consulting work and maintaining relationships with quite a few people and bishops that the NCBC Uh, has a very strong relationship with and that we work closely together with. And so I'm really looking forward to kind of almost a mentor relationship with him, that he can uh, provide the experience and wisdom from over 20 years working and and being president of the NCBC, that we can work together and, uh, and provide a very smooth transition and a lot of continuity.
0: What do you see as the strengths of the NCBC?
1: I'm particularly impressed with the staff. So as I was getting to meet everybody here, I was very happy to see the very high intellectual level, not only of, you know, the ethicists who all have PhDs, et cetera, but even the support staff and um, their knowledge of uh, Catholic doctrine, but also of, uh, the different aspects of what they do. We have a, a very strong publications uh, program here. We have a, an academic quarterly, the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. We have a monthly newsletter that goes out. We have all kinds of briefings that go out on different subjects, including public policy. But it was wonderful to meet the staff and to see you know, their commitment to their faith and also to very high academic standards. And you know, one of the things that NCBC does is free consultations, so people can call in with their ethical problems. Well, to me, uh, just sitting in on those conversations to see the the good that we do. You know, people are facing very difficult healthcare decisions or end of life planning, all these different things, and they need they need someone who is well informed. Who's intelligent can think through these very difficult issues, but who's also very faithful to the church teaching, and the NCBC provides that, which is remarkable.
0: Yeah, that's one of the comments um, that we get from people when we're doing consults, Which, and, and I've told you this, it, it's my it's a favorite part of my job actually. And and we really get that quite a bit. People thanking us for for being this presence, and and when we're out at at conferences and stuff, people come up and 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 say that, and it's actually very um, it's very fulfilling. Um, so, I, you know, what can be improved at the NCBC?
1: Well, I think one of the aspects of the NCBC that is unfortunate is that it's not very well known. So, you know, if you ask the average person out there in the U.S., what does NCBC stand for or what is the National Catholic Bioethics Center, you might find fairly low knowledge. You know, people just don't know that we exist. And mm-hmm. It's clear that we're not an institution that grabs a huge amount of publicity. Now, Father Tad, Holchik goes out and does a lot of interviews and whatnot and speaking across the U.S., but you know, when you just have a few staff members, and this is a, such a vast country, it's just very hard to get the word out that we exist, the all the services that we provide. Now, I want to think that the people who are most involved in Catholic healthcare care uh, that are bishops... Etc. know who the NCBC is, you know, and and what we do, and they're very supportive, but the general public perhaps uh, would benefit from learning more about what we do and what we offer.
0: So we talked a little bit about the strengths, a little bit about the things that could be improved. Where would you like to see the NCBC in 10 years?
1: Yeah, Uh, it's it's a very interesting question. I I think that um, It also relates to where our society is going. You know, uh, the NCBC was founded in the 1970s, even before Roe v. Wade. So in a sense, it was created as an institution in anticipation of all these different ethical issues, bioethical issues that were coming just around the corner. And I think the NCBC has a role in just being anticipating, if you will, some of the issues that are coming up uh, and to being... I think, a a very useful academic institution to think through some of these questions before they become actualized and also to help institutions in the U.S. to deal with um, some of these big ethical challenges that are coming around because technology is developing at an unheard of pace. You know, we're going to be able to do things in the next few years that people could only dream about. You know, science fiction is becoming science fact in so many areas. So I think the NCBC in 10 years will need to have kind of even more of a presence in terms of briefing our bishops of you know what's coming around, around the, the corner, <laughs> uh, what what kind of challenges there are. I think we're also going to have to be more involved in Catholic healthcare to help these institutions because there's a lot of political work, you know, political interference in in Catholic healthcare healthcare in general. And that has some, some pretty major ramifications, and I think there are a lot of ethical challenges that will need to be addressed. And I think the NCBC will have to have a very robust presence to support uh, the Catholic healthcare ministry in the United States.
0: All right. So you've you've talked about some challenge the, the need to address challenges and things that are around the corner. So I'd like to get a little more specific with that. And and I know you addressed this question uh, in an interview with Crux, but it, um, I'd like you know, for our, our audience to hear this as well. What specific challenges do you see facing Catholic healthcare in the future? And, and, and again, the role of the NCB, you already started to address this, but the, what's the role of the NCBC in addressing these challenges?
1: Well, I was very struck last year at the meeting of the Pontifical Academy for Life, where they were talking about robo-ethics, so essentially robotics. And they had an individual from Japan, so a professor there, who said he really didn't see the difference between a fully autonomous robot and a human being. <laughs> and it just struck me as truly incredible that, that an individual said, well, look, this you know, artificial intelligence that we're developing is going to create these new beings that should have human rights, and that, you know, there's all these different issues and it just struck me as, you know, wow, this is a different reality, you know, and obviously this person wasn't Catholic, <laughs> but the person we also hope. seemed, yeah, but the person was kind of disconnected. It seemed to me from reality and, uh, he had, um, a robot that, uh, looked just like him that he would send to meetings apparently in his stead, you know, as kind of his alter ego. So that, that really surprised me to see how far they've gone. Some individuals have gone in Japan and in other parts of the world. And, you know, I've been told that in uh, Catholic hospitals, they've been sort of adding robots. And, and I was in a supermarket the other day and I saw a robot go by, you know, so that whole aspect of things that I think is developing really fast. And uh, there are definite issues to be addressed there. I think um, – there are a lot of concerns, you know, with cloning and, and what, what we're going to be doing with, uh, with the human genetic genetic code, uh, you know, there are a lot of troubling things about, you know, discrimination, uh, finding out, uh, that a person may have genetic disease or possibility of genetic disease. And then their health insurance may, you know premiums may be going up, you know, or they're not going to be easily insured. Uh, there are a lot of, of real questions there, and that's directly based on the science and, and what we can know now that we couldn't know a few years ago.
0: So, Dr. Meany, earlier on, you were talking about the NCBCs, uh, th- you'd like t- to see greater presence for the NCBC, and, and you're right. So, currently, we have a, a fairly small audience. How can this audience, or how can the NCBC more visible to reach a wider public audience, particularly young adults?
1: Well, I think um, these podcasts are one way uh, to have more, I would say, publications and communications that reach across different forms of media. I think we can uh, do a good job of addressing the press and uh, you, know, getting commentary into news articles and, and do more interviews, et etc. I think we can also increase our speaking in different parts of the United States but I think also we'll just have to probably grow you know I think the NCBC will probably need to have some full-time staff involved in communications in the future just to um, to help get the message out
0: you with your role at HLI obviously it was a very international role what ways can the NCBC broaden its international influence
1: so there are very few countries out there that will have you know, a national Catholic bioethic center or an institution that is roughly comparable. And I think we can serve as a model for quite a few countries. Um, unfortunately, these bioethical challenges and questions are so complex that a lot of bishops really need expert advice in so many countries. And, you know, it's their canonical responsibility to oversee the Catholic hospitals in their diocese, but they may not have. Have the training or the background to do that very effectively, and you know, sure they can have a person there in charge of healthcare for their diocese, et cetera. But a lot of these issues do require uh, academic research and competence, et cetera. And so, I see the NCBC in a way as providing a model and perhaps even helping other countries to establish similar centers. Uh, one of the things that we belong to is an international federation of bioethics centers. And I think the NCBC is going to be uh, one of the leading institutions in that to help other centers to grow and uh, to become more helpful to the church in their different countries and even regions.
0: You know, following up on that, I'm I'm wondering, you know, here in the U.S., we tend to be very, well, we tend to be very U.S.-centric here. Are the bioethics challenges that we face in the U.S., similar to or different from challenges that are faced in other parts of the world? And I'm thinking particularly Latin America, Africa, parts of Asia.
1: I would say that the challenges in the U.S. tend to be more acute. And I think um, the U.S., for good or ill, tends to be a leading country in the world. So we tend to be on the cutting edge of a lot of things. And then other countries tend to follow our lead. So I think um, an exception to that, you know, was uh, the Japanese situation and possibly the Chinese situation. And uh, certainly in Europe, they're much more conservative on bioethics changes and accepting, you know, new, new technologies and, and uh, new definitions and things like that. I think the U.S. is a little bit more reactive for good or ill on these issues. And so in that way the NCBC can be helpful to other countries as well because we are probably going to see a lot of these challenges first and more acutely and then it's going to kind of trickle into other countries at a slower pace. So I think we can um, we can help them see what's coming down the pike. I mean certainly at, at HLI we we saw that a lot of the problems facing the United States in the in the life and family issues then go out to other countries around the world. And so we could tell them, well, this is what happened in the U.S., don't make the same mistakes, you know, or these are the good things that are happening in the United States. So, you know, crisis pregnancy centers and other things like that. So we were, we were really trying to, and I think it's, it's a good role for U.S. institutions to try and, and help uh, our brothers and sisters in different countries when we know that something is going to become an international challenge in the future.
0: Mm -hmm. Overall, how can the NCBC best serve the church? And I I say church in a a broad way, clergy, laity, everyone. How can the NCBC best serve the church in our times?
1: I think the NCBC is almost like a beacon of light, you know, on so many issues that are very difficult. And so from the individual who's facing a a personal familial crisis. we can help them there, but on some of these, you know, broader policy issues, we can shed light as well. I think for the bishops, uh, the fact that we do these workshops, uh, is a way to kind of keep them updated on what's going on and, uh, and to reaffirm with them, you know, that, uh, we're a resource that they can rely upon to be very faithful to church teaching and very helpful when, uh, a complex situation arises. I think, um, for the clergy in particular, one of the roles that NCBC has played is going out and, uh, and speaking to priest-symposiums, uh, teaching in some of our seminaries here in the United States, providing a lot of materials, and we, I think we should do that and continue doing that even more. I think in terms of the lady, a lot of our work, you know, needs to be better known, so we simply need to get it out more in, in more creative ways. Uh, Certainly, our our publications uh, would benefit from a wider audience. And I think in particular, uh, among the healthcare professions, we have a very close relationship with the Catholic Medical Association and and other Catholic institutions in the United States. I think we need to strengthen those ties and to work together uh, as much as we can, because that's a, a very important link to the laity. So basically, I think one of our biggest challenges is in communications. Getting, getting our message out, uh, reaching people where they are, and then being responsive as well to you know, new challenges that, that are coming around and to get that information out as much as possible. I think we need to build on a very strong base of you know, the, the professionals in Catholic healthcare, and the bishops themselves know us pretty well. But we need to trickle down a little bit further than that.
0: What final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners?
1: Well, I certainly want to, first of all, thank them for for listening. Ask for their prayers, because the work of uh, the National Catholic Bioethics Center is very challenging. Uh, some of these issues, you know, have not been resolved by the Church, and so we have to think very deeply about them and and see what the mind of the Church is about this. And of course, uh, when the Church pronounces itself. On these issues, we, uh, we are always in conformity with that. But um, we, we need help, uh, spiritual help in particular, to deal with some, some very complex problems. And I think um, one of the things that uh, I want to see at the NCBC is uh, a very strong spiritual presence of individuals praying for us and and praying for them, you know, and the church in general. But uh, having, having a responsibility, I think, to work closely with the bishops and with Catholic hospitals, et cetera, is something that the NCBC requires a lot of discernment and spiritual help to do properly. And that's something that uh, I'm hoping to get a lot of prayer support on. I think uh, the spiritual aspect of our work needs a lot of emphasis and to realize it's not just intellectual, but it's also, you know, people's lives are at stake, literally. And we need to have, um, have a very strong spiritual basis for what we do.
0: Dr. Joseph Meany, the new president of the NCBC, thank you for a wonderful interview. And we wish you the best of luck. No, thank you. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to support them and the National Catholic Bioethics Center, please click the donate button on our website. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.